So this morning's talk is titled, What is the Church? Different ways of looking at this. What is the church? What is the church? What is the church? Or what is the church? (laughs) Either way, very simple, just four words, what is the church? Now, you may be thinking, I'm surprised you don't know that, Steve, after all this time. Maybe you should have asked more questions before you took on the job. But obviously, I don't mean what's Ellsbury Vineyard. I don't mean what's this particular church. I mean what is the church. Because if Jesus was right when he said, I will build my church in Matthew um, chapter 16, then we need to know what that looks like. We need to know what kind of church he intends to build so that we can join in with him in that project to try to make sure that whatever we do, so far as possible, we are part of the solution and not part of the problem. That we're building with him, not against him, and not getting in his way. Because obviously, although uh, Jesus said, I will build my church, there's also a sense in which we build his church as well. And the tension that's involved in us doing it versus him doing it is illustrated very well in Psalm 127. Unless the Lord builds the house, the builders labour in vain. In vain you rise early and stay up late. All of our efforts, however hard we may work, getting up early, staying up late, are just kidding ourselves unless we are building what the Lord is building. With him as the architect and the designer and us just as the laborers and not of course the other way around so what does that look like and how do we know now you may say well surely everybody who's building a church thinks that they are building it on Jesus pattern and and I suppose that is true and that we all run the same risk of allowing our human opinions and our human ideas to get in the way So we need some kind of basis for deciding what Jesus' kind of church looks like. One in which he will feel most at home and that he'll be happy sending people to. One that he will be happy to see grow. We need some kind of criteria to gauge or measure what a Jesus-built church looks like. And of course, the place that we go to find that gauge or measure is the Bible. You've probably heard me say before that Christians talk about the canon of Scripture. That's C-A-N-O-N, just one N. Because canon is the Greek word for ruler or measuring stick. So Scripture, as the Word of God, operates as our ruler or our measuring stick for everything to do with the Christian life and Christian practice. We measure our lives against the Bible. We measure what we do against the Bible. We measure our understanding of God, of who he is and what he's like against what we see in the Bible. We measure every prophetic word or picture or revelation against what we read in the Bible. And we measure our understanding of the church and the kind of church that Jesus wants to build against the Bible. In other words, we allow the Bible to run the rule over everything to see how we are measuring up. And because God is never inconsistent, anything that he may be saying to us now 
will always be consistent with what he's already said in the Bible. And that, of course, is why it helps for us to know the Bible if we want to be prophetic people who prophesy well. So let's start with the word church in the New Testament. Now, you probably know that the New Testament was written in Greek because Greek was the most common language in the Mediterranean world in that time. It was kind of like the English of its day. And the Greek word for church is ecclesia, uh, from which we get our words like ecclesial and ecclesiastical and ecclesiology, the study of what it means to be and to do church. And this Greek word for church, ecclesia, has two root aspects for its meaning. One is called out, and the other is gathered together. So the ecclesia, the church, is a group of people who are both called out and gathered together. Now you quite often uh, hear people saying that the church isn't the building, the church is the people. Have you heard that phrase? Well, that is true to a point. Uh, The Bible certainly never refers to the church as a building, and nor for that matter as a meeting or a service. But just to say the church is people doesn't actually go far enough. Because the church isn't just people as individuals. It's a group of people. And not just any group of people, but a group of people that have these certain shared characteristics visible in their lives. Being called out and gathered together. So if you can't remember anything else that I say this morning, please try to remember this. The church is a group of people who are both called out and gathered together. So in a moment, we'll have a a quick look at what it means to be called out and gathered together. But before we do that, let me just tell you one other thing. Now, most of us probably assume that the word church... The word ecclesia is found only in the New Testament. But actually, that isn't the case. The version of the Old Testament that most people used in the first century, the version that the Apostle Paul would have used, was the Greek translation called the Septuagint. And that's because, as I said a moment ago, Greek was the lingua franca of the day. And the word that the Greek translators chose for the people of God gathered together in the Old Testament was ecclesia. It's actually used nearly a hundred times. So, for example, the day that God gave Moses the Ten Commandments in Deuteronomy is called the day of the ecclesia, the day of the church. In Acts 7, when Stephen is talking about the people of Israel on their journey to the Promised Land, He calls them the ecclesia in the wilderness, the church in the wilderness. And actually you can see why the Jewish translators chose that Greek word 250 years before there was any such thing called the New Testament church. Because the characteristics of the people of God in the Old Testament were the same as the characteristics of the people of God in the New. This group of people who were both called out and gathered together. At uh, Christmas time, we sometimes have a reading from Matthew 2, which 
talks about when Mary and Joseph fled to Egypt with the baby Jesus to escape uh, King Herod's threats, and they returned after he died. And Matthew says, this fulfilled what the Lord had said through the prophet, out of Egypt I called my son. Remember that reading at Christmas time? Well, the original context for that prophecy, which is from Hosea, and its original fulfillment was when God called Israel out of Egypt in the story of the Exodus. When Israel was a child, I loved him, and out of Egypt I called my son. Passover is the Jewish holiday that celebrates the Exodus when God called Israel out of Egypt. When God rescued them from the kingdom of Egypt and delivered them to live in a new and different place a new and different kingdom where God would be the king instead of Pharaoh. And if you know the Easter story, you'll know that Passover is the time when Jesus died for us on the cross. The Last Supper, where we get communion from, was a Passover week meal. Jesus could obviously have chosen some other time, some other Jewish festival at which to die, such as, for example, the Day of Atonement. But he didn't. He chose to die at Passover. And the reason for that is because the primary imagery of what Jesus did for us at the cross is the imagery of God rescuing and liberating his people from slavery and captivity in a pagan land. That was the decisive event of the Old Testament story. And that's why it forms the pattern and the picture for the decisive event of the New Testament. When Israel was a child, I loved him, and out of Egypt I called my son. So the very first thing that happens after Israel has been called out of Egypt in this story of the Exodus is that the Lord says to Moses, speak to the Israelites and say to them, I am the Lord your God. You must not do as they do in Egypt where you used to live. Do not follow their practices. In other words, he's saying, Israel, you are now a called out people. So you need to live differently. Stop living like the pagans do. Stop doing the things that the pagans do. Because now you need to live like a called out people. You need to live in a way that shows the world what life looks like when God is in charge of how people live. So it's not surprising that we see this same idea exactly reflected in the New Testament because God's purposes never really change throughout history and what it means to be his ecclesia never change either. And that is a group of people called out and gathered together. In 1 Peter 2, Peter goes a bit over the top uh, in piling up a string of images of what church should be like. And he says, You are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, God's special possession, that you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his wonderful light. And then the Apostle Paul says the same thing in Colossians 1. He has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved son in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. 
So just like a footballer who's been transferred to a new club from an old club, we can't keep on playing for that old club as well. We've been called out of Egypt to be his sons and his daughters. So if we're part of the church of Jesus Christ, then the first characteristic that we should have is being called out. Just like the people of Israel, we can't be the church if we continue to hanker after the lifestyle of Egypt. You know, that was always uh, Israel's complaint in the wilderness. Every time something went wrong in life, we should have stayed in Egypt. But, you know, we can't live as the people of God some of the time and then keep popping back to Egypt because we enjoy the Egyptians' lifestyle too much. We can't have one foot in each kingdom. Otherwise, what happens is we end up being too churchy to be happy in the world and too worldly to be happy in the church. We end up miserable in both because we're not doing either of them properly. The Apostle John put it like this. He said, Do not love this world nor the things it offers you. For when you love the world, you do not have the love of the Father in you. In other words, when you are loving the world, you aren't doing it with the love of God the Father. You see, the thing is that the church isn't a group of people who live the same way as everyone else, but just believe different things. The church is a group of people who are trying to live the same way as Jesus because they believe different things. So that's the first characteristic. The church is a group of people who are called out from the domain of darkness into the kingdom of God where Jesus rules and reigns. Now let's have a look at the second characteristic, the church as a group of people who are gathered together. There's another truism that you sometimes hear people saying about church, which is this one. You don't have to go to church to be a Christian. Have you heard that one? And it's a truism because to our modern way of thinking, it seems obviously true. That's why people say it without thinking twice about it. It obviously seems true. And that's because in today's world, everything is about me as an individual. I'm the center of my world. I'm the center of my faith. So I assume that the definition of a Christian must be all about my individual relationship with God. That being part of a group, being part of church, must be just an optional extra that I only need to take part in if and to the extent that it enhances, that it adds something to my individual relationship with God. So my relationship to other Christians becomes like most other decisions that I make in life, thinking like a consumer, asking myself, what will I get out of this? How convenient is it? And what's happened is that we've unwittingly confused the difference between a Christian life that's centered on a personal relationship with Jesus and one that's centered on an individualistic relationship with Jesus. I wonder if you can see the difference. 
And that statement, that truism, also presumes, if we're honest, that God doesn't think much of the church either. That he obviously agrees that you don't have to go to church to be a Christian. That he's really not that bothered about church either. That he wouldn't go himself if he didn't have to. That really, all he's interested in is individual relationships. So if I personally get better worship listening to a Bethel CD, he's happy for me to do that instead. If I get a better sermon on God TV, he's happy for me to watch that instead. Or is he? Do you think he is? See, what's happened is that we've started to define everything and to make decisions on what we do or we don't do by whether or not they're enhancing my personal Christian experience. But they have nothing whatsoever to do with the church being a group of people gathered together. Now, I hope you understand that what I'm saying this morning is not about trying to make people go to church. It's not about trying to make people feel guilty so they'll go to church more often. It's simply trying to show us how we tend to think without even realising that we're thinking. And it's to try to help us to see that if we don't get that we are only part of the church when we're in a group of people gathered together, then there is a crater-sized hole in our understanding of what it means to be a Christian in the first place. The idea of a church-free Christianity, of Christianity detached from church, is one of the great deceptions of our day. Uh, Credit to Satan for getting so many Christians to buy into it without realising it and coming up with creative ways in which to justify it. So in the time that we've got left, let's have a, a quick look at this aspect of the church as a group of people gathered together in the book of Acts, which is kind of like the history of the early church. And and I specifically want to look at the impact of the Holy Spirit on the church in Acts chapter 2. There are four separate references to the church being gathered together in that chapter. Four verses in which it talks about the church being together. And each time they're together, something significant happens. The first time is in the very first verse. When the day of Pentecost came, they were all together in one place. And if we just pause there for a moment, what happens next really couldn't have happened if they'd all been in different places doing their own personal thing. We already know from chapter 1 that after Jesus had ascended to heaven, it says that they all joined together constantly in prayer, along with the women and Mary, the mother of Jesus, and with his brothers. And that's probably what they were doing early in the morning on the day of Pentecost. And then, as I say, what happens next could really only have happened because they were all gathered together in one place. Suddenly, a a sound like the blowing of a violent wind came from heaven and filled the whole house where they were sitting. They saw what seemed to be tongues of fire that separated and came to rest on each of them. All of them were filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit enabled them. Now they were staying in Jerusalem, God-fearing Jews from every nation under heaven. 
When they heard this sound, a crowd came together in bewilderment because each one heard their own language being spoken. Utterly amazed, they asked, aren't all these who are speaking Galileans? Then how is it that each of us hears them in our native language? Parthians, Medes and Elamites, residents of Mesopotamia, Judea and lots of other unpronounceable places, visitors from Rome, both Jews and converts to Judaism, Cretans and Arabs, we hear them declaring the wonders of God in our own tongues. Amazed and perplexed, they ask one another, what does this mean? Now this is not the same kind of speaking in tongues that Paul talks about in 1 Corinthians as an angelic personal prayer language. This is the Holy Spirit miraculously reversing what happened at the Tower of Babel in Genesis 11. This is the Holy Spirit bringing people together so that they understand each other, so that the cultural and ethnic barriers that came about in human life have been reversed and removed. This is the Holy Spirit Sovereignly enabling people of different cultures and languages to come together in relationship, understanding one another and being the people of God together. A people who are both called out and gathered together. So that's the first thing that we see here as the fruit of the outpouring of the Holy Spirit on the church in Acts chapter 2. But it's by no means the only thing that we see here. And again, it's the fruit of the Holy Spirit working in the lives of a group of people who are called out to live differently to the world around them and be gathered together as the church. Verse 42. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship, to the breaking of bread and to prayer. Everyone was filled with awe at the many wonders and signs performed by the apostles. All the believers were together and had everything in common. They sold property and possessions to give to anyone who had need. Every day they continued to meet together in the temple courts. They broke bread in their homes and ate together with glad and sincere hearts, praising God and enjoying the favour of all the people. And the Lord added to their number daily those who were being saved. They were together. They had everything in common together. They met together just on Sunday mornings. No, they didn't. They met together every day in the temple courts for the bigger gatherings and in each other's homes for the smaller gatherings. They shared meals together. They looked after each other. They worshipped together. And the consequence of this, all this being together was a community in which needs were met and people were being attracted to the gospel. In fact, what's being described here is the gospel. And then before we move on, I just want you to notice one last thing in this passage. Do you see how difficult it is to see which are the so-called social events and which are the so-called spiritual events? called out to live differently and being together as the church, come together in one lifestyle. Spiritually natural and naturally spiritual all week long. So it was nothing to do with attending or having to do anything. I think if you had asked Luke, who 
wrote the book of Acts, if you asked him that question, do you have to go to church to be a Christian? I think he would have looked at you somewhat incredulous. I think he would have said, aren't you completely missing the point of what church is when you ask that kind of a question? How can we be all of these things in this passage? All of these things that the Holy Spirit wants to do among us if we're not the church gathered together. So what is God saying to us this morning, I wonder? We can obviously look at New Testament Greek words all day long, but what is the application? What might God be saying? What's going to change in our lives and our experience from this moment on? Maybe the first thing that God is challenging some of us about is whether our understanding of what it means to be a Christian has been too individualistic. Maybe you've confused having a personal faith with having an individualistic faith. Maybe you've realised that that's been wrong and you need to ask God to help you to change that starting now. Maybe your understanding of church has been wrong. Maybe you've thought of the church as just another supplier of personal religious goods and services. Maybe you've tended to use them language when you've talked about the church rather than us language. Even though the Bible never talks of church as a building or a service, maybe that's how you've tended to think about it. Maybe you've had a Sunday morning-centred faith, an attendance-centred faith. You've been relating to a service rather than to a group of people. So maybe God is challenging you this morning to become part of this group of people in a new way. I mean, really part. To come early and stay late rather than come late and leave early. And maybe he's inviting you to think about what it looks like in your life to be called out, to live differently to the world around you, to start saying no to being like some of the people that you're currently spending time with. The Apostle Paul said in 1 Corinthians 15, don't be deceived, bad company corrupts good morals. And maybe it's time to start gathering together with other people, other Christians in the church. Maybe it's time to start prioritising gathering together. To start being the church, not just in a Sunday service like today, but during the week. Meeting together. Praying for each other together. Sharing meals and breaking bread together. Inviting the Holy Spirit to come upon us together. Because things happen when we're gathered together that simply don't happen when we're just on our own. So I'd like you to ask yourself this question. What does your personal gathering together as the church look like right now in your life, apart from Sunday morning? Just do a, a quick review in your mind of what your week looks like in church terms. 
You may say, well, that's all very well, Steve, but I don't actually have time for any of that. And, you know, I understand that, and more importantly, God understands that because he understands everything about our lives. Because the reality is that time doesn't exist. We have to make time. And we always make time for that which is most important. And, of course, In doing so, we have to juggle what is difficult for us with what is best for us and what is good for us. Mike, maybe I could ask you to come back. Thanks. So here are some easy ways that maybe we can start to change. Things that maybe God might be speaking to us about in implementing this this morning. Maybe we should be starting by inviting someone back to Sunday lunch. Maybe we should start to serve in one of the teams on a Sunday morning. And if you're already serving in one of the teams, then join another one. Or serve for both services. Serve for the whole morning. Meet more people, get to know more people. Because the best way to get to know people is to serve with people. And then the second best way is to be hospitable yourself. Invite other people around. And then last but not least, join a connect group. You see, connect groups are like the church in miniature. They're church on a smaller and more intimate scale. Our new connect groups will be starting very soon and uh, next week between the two services we're going to be having a connect group fair where you can uh, meet the leaders and find out all about the groups during the donut time. So why don't you come early for that? Meet the Connect Group leaders and sign up to become part of one. Joining a Connect Group is like having a personal invitation to someone's house every single week. It's impossible not to make friends and to get to know people when you're part of a Connect Group. Connect Groups are the church gathered together during the week. They are the closest thing to what the church is doing in Acts chapter 2. So join more than one of them if you would like. So what's God saying to us this morning? The church that Jesus is building is a group of people who are called out and gathered together. So where are you right now as part of that group? Maybe you want to do some business with Jesus this morning. If he's speaking to you about your relationship to his church, then please don't leave here this morning without doing something in response. Maybe share it with someone, maybe someone you came with, someone who you know who's sitting nearby. Share it with someone and maybe invite them uh, to pray with you.